Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Have you ever wanted to call down fire from heaven? I remember as a child, I dreamed of being a superhero. I would pretend to be a superhero. In fact, if you ever found me in my backyard, you probably saw me with a cape on, either like a literal blanket tied around my neck or like in my head, I had a cape on and I had superpowers and I was fighting bad guys. Of course, the the superpower that I wanted most was the ability to fly. So in my head, I was flying. But the second superpower that I wanted and dreamed that I had was being able to shoot fireballs from my hand. And I would have been a little bit like Oprah giving away her favorite things. You get a fireball, you get a fireball. All of the bad guys were getting fireballs raining down on them from heaven. So what is it that makes you want to call down fire from heaven? I know for me what it is, and it is people who hog armrests on airplane flights. (laughs) And so it's actually a great thing that I'm not in charge of who gets fire rained down on them from heaven because... If you are one of those people who hogs an armrest, you would get fire raining down on you from heaven. And so I'm glad that God doesn't let me make the decision about who gets fire from heaven. But what makes you wish that you could call down fire from heaven? Is it maybe things that people say on social media? Is it perhaps someone who has stood in your way in your career Is it maybe somebody who has a different political opinion from you? Or is it perhaps someone who's harmed you or has harmed your children? What makes you wish that you could call down fire from heaven? Columnist, journalist, commentator David Brooks has a great phrase to describe us as a society. He calls us a society of vulnerable narcissists. Isn't that a great phrase? He's borrowed it from elsewhere. But he says we are a society of vulnerable narcissists. What does he mean by that? Well, by that, he means that in our society, we have become more and more lonely. Statistics tell us that we are making friendships and building marriages. We're we're engaging in the fabric of relationship in smaller and smaller percentages. Now, as a result of that, the research tells us that because of our loneliness, we're sad. In fact, a lot of us teeter on the edge of depression and anxiety, which means that that we are a bit more isolated and on our own, frequently at home, because we are a bit more isolated, we, we make up our own rules in life about what is right and wrong without any reference to a transcendent moral power or moral order. And after we make up those rules for ourselves, we join tribes. 
We go looking for tribes of people who express similar thoughts on social media or, or we get involved in political parties or we find people who express an identity that's similar to ours and, and we glom together in a tribe and, and we come to the conclusion that everyone who is in the tribe is good and everyone who's outside the tribe is bad and we go to war with one another. But the fascinating thing about this tribal warfare is we think we're part of something bigger. But it's not a real tribe. It's not a real family. It's not a real group of friends. It's just a bunch of isolated individuals doing the same thing alone, together. And so, David Brooks says, we become these vulnerable narcissists, caught in our own little world, focused on our own little reality, we are actually more vulnerable than ever. We are vulnerable to losing hope. We're vulnerable to hurt. We're vulnerable to sadness and depression. We are vulnerable narcissists. And when we vulnerable narcissists get hurt, we become people who frequently and quickly want to call down fire from heaven. We're frequently and easily offended and rejected. Now, here's the interesting thing, and we all know this. Sometimes we are offended for good reasons. Sometimes we're offended for bad reasons. But in both cases, when we are offended, the question becomes, what will we do with that offense? We want to ask the question today, what did Jesus do when he was rejected and offended? And what did Jesus tell his disciples, us, to do when we are rejected and offended? And offended. And it's important that we not only ask this question, but that we answer this question as well. And it's important because we recognize that even Jesus was offended. Jesus was offended as we study the pages of the New Testament today. In the scripture passage that we read today, you heard it said that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, that means in part that Jesus had reached a pivot point in his life and ministry, and Jesus had achieved a point where everything was tilting toward the future. And so the Bible says that at this pivot point, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And in a very real sense, that means that basically the Galilean phase of his ministry is coming to a close slowly, and he is making his way toward Jerusalem. But the journey is going to be a long and circuitous one, but Jesus is basically moving from Galilee south toward Jerusalem. But it means so much more than that. When the text says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, it means that Jesus has embraced, he's decided upon the future that he knows waits for him in Jerusalem. He's accepted what's coming to him in Jerusalem and everything it means, because Jesus knows that what awaits for him in Jerusalem 
is rejection by the establishment. He, he faces betrayal. He faces arrest, trial, condemnation, crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension, and a return to his father. And Jesus saying that he has, has set his face toward Jerusalem means that Jesus has embraced it all, including the rejection and the offense. Now, Jesus already knows where the rejection and the offense is going to come from. He's said it in multiple times that he's going to be rejected by the establishment in Jerusalem. Just a few verses earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus had told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to be rejected by the entire Jerusalem establishment, which is absolutely no surprise if you've been studying the Gospels, because you know from the very beginning, Jesus was rejected by the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. And Jesus knows in addition to that, eventually he will be rejected by the priests and by the governing authorities in Jerusalem. We're just not surprised by that at all because we've been reading the Gospels. However, in the passage that we read today, Jesus is rejected by a town of Samaritans. And that comes as a bit more of a surprise. You see, Jesus saying that he has set his face to Jerusalem means that he's beginning the journey from Galilee in the north toward Jerusalem and Judea in the south. And the quickest pathway would go through Samaria, but there were hostile relations between the Samaritans and the Jews, despite the fact that they were similar ethnically, similar religiously. Their ethnic differences, their religious and their historic differences left the two peoples very uh, distant from one another and hostile to one another. And so Jews making the traveling the distance from Galilee to Jerusalem and Judea would frequently go around through the Transjordan in order to make that journey to avoid Samaria. But Jesus decided to go through Samaria, and so he sent messengers ahead of him to prepare a town for his arrival. And the messengers went into the town, and what they were offering the people of that Samaritan town was a chance to see Jesus, to receive him, to hear him teach. If there was faith present, he would have worked miracles and cast out demons. But the people of that village, that town, knowing that Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem, rejected him. Now, if you're Jewish, that doesn't surprise you because if you're Jewish, you look at the Samaritans as the bad guys in that day. But as we read and study the Gospels, it's surprising because the Samaritans are frequently ones who hear and receive the good news about Jesus eagerly. 
In fact, in the next chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, in chapter 10, Jesus tells a parable about a man who is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and is set upon by robbers. He's robbed and beaten and left for dead by the side of the road. And Jesus says, two members of the establishment come along. A priest and a Levite, both of them, cross over to the other side of the road and pass the man by, ignoring him and leaving him with his wounds. But another comes along and stops and helps the wounded man. And the one who stops is a Samaritan. We refer to that one as the good Samaritan. And Jesus tells the crowds, you be like that. You be like that Samaritan. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals a group of 10 people with leprosy. And as they walk away, they realize that they've been healed. And nine of them continue on to return to their old lives. But one of them stops having realized that he's been healed. And he comes back to Jesus to express his gratitude for what Jesus has done for him. And the Bible says that one who came back, he was a Samaritan. In the book of Acts, as the gospel is spreading, there is a revival that takes place where the gospel spreads in a mighty way in the city of Samaria itself. And so in the New Testament, Samaritans frequently are ones who embrace the good news about Jesus. And yet here, surprisingly, even Samaritans reject Jesus, and give offense at refusing to receive him. And this is a reminder to each and every one of us who are disciples of Jesus that following Jesus always involves rejection and offense. Sometimes we're not surprised by the rejection and offense. Sometimes we know that there are people who are simply not going to receive us. They're not going to listen to the good news about Jesus, and they're not going to live Jesus's way of life. And so when they reject us, we are simply not surprised. But then there are people that we do not expect to reject us or God. We expect that they are going to receive us. We expect that they're at least going to listen to the good news about Jesus, and we expect that they're going to be friendly to living the wise and godly, righteous way of life that Jesus teaches. But then, for some reason, they do reject it all. And it comes as a surprise to us that they've rejected it. They've rejected us, they've rejected the good news, and they've rejected Jesus' way of life, and it surprises us. We don't expect our families to reject us, to reject the good news, and to reject Jesus' way of life, but sometimes they do. Sometimes our children reject us, the good news, and Jesus' way of life. We don't expect good people, people we assume are good otherwise, to be hostile, to reject us, to reject the good news, and to reject Jesus' way of life, but then sometimes they do. And we don't expect people who have at least professed in other phases of their life to have been Christians 
to reject us, to reject the gospel, and to walk away from Jesus' way of life. But sometimes they do. And when we are surprised by the rejection, the offense is all the worse. And we know, we know that when we follow Jesus, we will be rejected and we will be offended. But the question becomes, what will we do? What will we do when we're rejected and offended? Oh, James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven. James and John, you need to know, had pretty big egos. James and John are brothers. They were among the first disciples Jesus called, and Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. You don't give a person with a small ego the nickname Son of Thunder, do you? And James and John on another occasion went to Jesus and they said, we'd like you to do something for us. If we could, please, could one of us sit on your right hand and one on your left hand in the kingdom of God, which means, can we be prime minister in the kingdom of God? They had big egos, right? At the same time, James and John remembered massive displays of divine power in the past. They remembered things from the Old Testament, like when in the Old Testament, the king of Israel sent messengers to ask if a disease that he had was going to be a problem, and they ran into the prophet Elijah, and Elijah sent the messengers back to the king with a message. This disease comes from God, and it is going to end in your death. The messengers returned to the king with a message from Elijah the prophet, and let's just say the king wasn't happy with what he heard. And so he put together a group of 50 soldiers with their captain and sent them to find Elijah to politely request that Elijah come in to have, let's call it a conversation about prophecy. And so the 50 soldiers set out with their captain and they came, they found Elijah the prophet sitting on the top of a hill and they called him to come down and go with them to, the, to see the king. And 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 10 puts it so elegantly. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. After this first group of soldiers did not return to the king, the king sent a second group of 50 men with a captain, and the exact same thing happened the second time. The third time he sent 50 men with a captain, they found Elijah the prophet, and they fell down on their faces and begged for their lives. Why? Because it is entirely appropriate. When God is offended, when God's holiness is questioned, when his righteousness is in question, and when his messenger is being abused, it is entirely appropriate for God to display his massive divine power in response. James and John knew this. They remembered this. In addition, James and John had seen 
massive displays of divine power in Jesus. They'd seen this themselves. Of course, they'd seen the miracles. But not too long before Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56, James and John had accompanied Peter and Jesus to the top of a mountain. And while they were praying, Jesus' appearance was transformed. He was transfigured before them, and he began radiating divine power and glory. And the voice of God the Father boomed and affirmed the glory and the appropriateness of God the Son. And James and John had been there. They'd seen it. They'd experienced that. It's a massive display of divine power and glory. And so here, James and John proposed a massive display of divine power in some ways to heal their wounded egos. Their master, when they served, had been rejected. And so they said, Jesus, here's what we'll do. We're your messengers. We will happily call down fire from heaven to consume that Samaritan village that is given offense. But at the same time, it's not simply about healing their wounded egos. The Samaritan village had rejected salvation, had rejected holiness, had rejected righteousness, had rejected God himself. And the Bible says that the wages of rejecting God himself is death. It's punishment. And so in a sense, it is entirely appropriate to think about fire raining down from heaven on human rejection of God. James and John, though, forgot Jesus' ethical instructions to disciples of his. Earlier in the gospel according to Luke in chapter 6, Jesus in his sermon on the plain was telling his disciples what he expected from them as they sought to live in the kingdom of God. And in verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That doesn't sound very much like calling down fire from heaven on our enemies. And yet James and John had forgotten these ethical instructions from Jesus. James and John had also forgotten Jesus' very practical ministry instructions to his apostles. At the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent out the 12 that he would designate ultimately to be his apostles. He sent them out with instructions to preach, and he gave them power to heal and to cast out demons. And he gave them instructions about what they were to do as they traveled. They were to go to places And where they were welcomed, they were to stay. They were to preach. They were to heal. They were to cast out demons. But in the instances where they were rejected, Jesus gave them instructions. In Luke chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus told them how to deal with such a situation. He said, and whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, 
shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Walk away, he said, and shake the dust off your feet. James and John had forgotten these instructions from Jesus. And so when they proposed calling down fire from heaven, instead of authorizing it, Jesus rebuked them. He corrected them for their mistake. And then Jesus led the group to do exactly what he had told them to do in Luke chapter 9, verse 5. Instead of going into town and instead of raining down fire from heaven, they shook the dust off their feet and they walked away. Jesus is setting a model for us here to see. Instead of calling down fire from heaven, Jesus practiced the strength of silence. Now, how was Jesus able to do that, and why would Jesus be able to do that? Well, first of all, Jesus was able to do that because he knew his purpose. Jesus talked about his purpose when he began his public ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth, when he had an opportunity to read a text and to explain it. He read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and we read what he read in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus quoted Isaiah and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, look at this, to proclaim good news to the poor, and later he said, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus said, this is my purpose for being here now. It's to proclaim good news, proclaim God's favor, to proclaim salvation and call people to salvation. That's his purpose. It's not calling down fire from heaven. Jesus knew his purpose, and Jesus also knew the season. It is the season, the age, the era of the church. And the season, the age, the era of the church is marked by this offer of salvation. It's different than other ages. It's different than other eras. And during the season, the era, the age of the church, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we read that this is marked by the offer of salvation. The Lord, Peter says, is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowless. In other words, he's not slow to judge but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what this age, this era is about. This is what this season is like. It's the era of the call to salvation. But that's not every era. That's not every age. Sin is significant. Evil is potent, and these things must be dealt with. And Peter goes on in verse 10 to say, these things will be dealt with. When the era, the age, the season changes again, he says, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come, and when it does, it'll come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The world will be judged, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We will be judged. Judgment is coming. 
There is a season of fire raining down from heaven, if you will, but this is not that season, and Jesus knew the season. Jesus also knew his identity, and the prophet Isaiah tells us who we would expect Jesus to be, what we would expect Messiah to be like. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. It's describing who Messiah, who Jesus will be. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Be silent like a lamb being led to the slaughter. That's what Isaiah told us to look for in Messiah, and that's who Jesus knew he was. And so Jesus, after he was arrested and stood on trial before the high priest, accused of capital crimes, was strangely silent. In a similar fashion, when he stood before Pilate, the Roman governor, who had the chance to make the decision about Jesus' fate, or so he thought. Pilate read the charges, and Jesus refused to engage. He remained, by and large, silent. Jesus knew his identity, and his identity was not in this season to call down fire from heaven. It was to practice instead the strength of silence. And Jesus not only knew his identity, but he knew what to say. He knew what the strength of silence would look like in certain situations. And so the Bible even tells us that when he hung on the cross, and he had every right and every ability to call down not only fire, but the armies of heaven. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, we read what Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Instead of calling down fire from heaven, Jesus practiced the strength of silence. And it's good news to us that Jesus did this because we think of ourselves as the ones who are offended. But it's easy when we have been offended to forget that we are also the ones who give the offense. We have offended God. We've rejected him and declared ourselves sovereign We have rejected God, and the Bible tells us that the penalty for rejecting God is death. It is fire raining down from heaven upon us. And so it's very good news to us that instead of calling down fire from heaven upon us, Jesus practiced the strength of silence because Jesus took our offense. Jesus put our offense on his own shoulders, the weight of it. And then Jesus died on the cross to pay the price, the penalty for our offense. And then Jesus rose again from the dead, victorious over that very offense. And now Jesus offers us forgiveness 
a new life and eternal life instead of calling down fire upon us. And that leaves us with a call in our lives. For us, instead of calling down fire from heaven, let's practice the strength of silence. Instead of us calling down fire from heaven, let's practice the strength of silence. Braver Angels is a nonprofit that's helping people to learn a little bit more about the strength of silence in a secular world. Braver Angels is seeking to bring together people of opposite political persuasions. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a bit of political tension in our country right now. And Braver Angels seeks to bring them together for dialogue, to kind of de-escalate some of the hostility. They're not looking to bring unanimity. They're not looking to, to forge agreement. They're simply looking to get people to the place where their first thought is not, call down fire from heaven on my enemies. And they begin the process with teaching people how to practice the strength of silence. When they bring people together of opposite political persuasions, rather than having them talk to one another at the first, they have them think separately, sometimes in separate groups. They teach them to ask a question. And the first question is, what does the other group think about me? And they think, and they assess themselves, and they make a list. And the second thing that they think through is, what do I wish that the other group thought about me instead? And then when people participating think that the job is done, they put one more question to them, and that is, of the things that the other group thinks about me, which ones are at least a little bit true? And having practiced the strength of silence first, then they come together for dialogue and hopefully don't call down fire from heaven on one another. Stephen, in the New Testament, ultimately learned how to practice the strength of silence. After many disciples of Jesus failing, as James and John did right here in verses 51 through 56, to practice the strength of silence, Stephen finally got it right. Stephen was an early disciple of Jesus, a leader in the early church in the book of Acts. And he became a prominent disciple of Jesus, such that he caught the attention of the Jewish establishment, and they arrested him and brought him in front of them to explain himself and answer charges. And Stephen made a beautiful explanation of and defense of the gospel of Jesus, which is a reminder to us all that there is a time, a place, and a season to speak the truth. And then the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem condemned him. They rejected him. They gave great offense. And that is going to happen to followers of Jesus. They condemned him and they drug him out of the court, out of town, preparing to stone him. And this is the point at which Stephen had a decision to make. What would he do? Try to call down fire from heaven or imitate Jesus and practice 
the strength of silence as his master and Lord had done. And in the book of Acts, we read chapter 7, verse 60, and falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. Stephen practiced the strength of silence. Silence requires real strength. Anger is easy. Calling down fire from heaven is easy. Silence requires that we love God more than we love our reputations. Silence requires that we love others more than we love being right or speaking our minds. Silence requires real strength. Let's practice the strength of silence. God the Son expects us to practice the strength of silence. God the Holy Spirit equips us to be silent. And God the Father honors the strength of silence. When offended, let's learn to practice the strength of silence. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.